The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. So in one of my recent copious stays at various commercial airport, airline airports, uh, uh, I, I I have stories to tell, all right? But uh, this is the, I think I talked uh, maybe last week or the week before about my long stay at O'Hare. And one of the things I heard that was interesting while I was sitting at O'Hare, maybe it wasn't O'Hare, but it was one of these airports. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't my flight. It wasn't my gate. It was a gate across the corridor. And suddenly the, uh, this, the, uh, uh, airline guy comes on the uh, public address system and he goes into this little song and dance about how he says that, uh, he says, well, he says, uh, the pilots, when they're inspecting the airplane, they discovered a, what he called a small dent in the underside of the airplane. That's how he described it. A small dent in the underside of the airplane. He then proceeded to explain more than I, th- I think he was trying to, you know, make people feel like this was important and they were going about it right, you know, step by step. And so we shouldn't be or they shouldn't be upset by the delay. He said he said that the maintenance people had measured the dent. All right. And I would presume this means not only the dimensions of the dent, but where it is on the aircraft. And now they needed to write it up and then they were going to send it off to Bombardier, who was in this particular aircraft. And that Bombardier was going to make recommendations on how to proceed. And this was going to take at least an hour. And I just thought that was, that was just one of the more unique announcements I've ever heard at an airport. It got me to thinking about the, the nature of dents on, on, on uh, aircraft in general. But first of all, how do you get a dent on an airliner without knowing about it? This was my oh, first question. A lot of ways. Yeah. Um, Keep keep in mind that what the crew does with the airplane when it, when they put it in motion, and when they and, and they bring it to a stop, there's a lot of stuff that happens in and around that airplane until it moves again under its own power. Uh, luggage tugs, um, um, all kinds of vehicles are going around or underneath it. Um, could have been you know uh, some fog on the runway that that was. Uh, thrown up by the tires. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought of that one. All right. Could, could you know? I, I don't know what kind of airplane this is, and I don't want to know. Maybe maybe it's got a that that particular panel is composite, and uh, it's got a void in it or something. And the the void, you know, all of a sudden failed or, or caved in or something at altitude. Um, who knows? Mm-hmm. Who knows? It, it it might not have been a a quote dent. It could have simply been some kind of a de- deformation or a delamination. Um, who who knows what um your average gate agent at uh, your average uh, uh, airline airport is going to tell you these days, whether it's a dent, whether it's a scratch, whether it's you know, I don't know. Yeah, David, what were you going to say? Oh, I was kind of along the lines of what uh, Jim just said is, and if it did happen with the crew while the aircraft was in motion, you think about. The roughness of the pavement and the ride, you know, and it's going bump bump over the stuff. Uh, and there's a, a a void between the outer pressure vessel 
underneath than the floor that uh, the passengers walk in and out of. And even if there's not luggage space under there, like on larger aircraft, there's still a big empty space down there where you wouldn't necessarily feel something specifically cause a dent in the bottom of the aircraft. And if it happened at a gate, well, Jiminy, it could have been uh, Uncle Larry walking into it with his uh, with his luggage cart. You got that TSA guy trying to climb up the side of the airplane. That's always a possibility. That's always a possibility. Although uh-huh. that would have put a dent in 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 in, a, in an upper area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wh- uh, have you guys ever? arrived at your airplane, your personal airplane, to discover some sort of structural issue like that that uh, gave you pause? Um, yeah. Dave, yeah. David, yeah. go ahead first. Well, I uh, discovered a, a, a dent in an aileron that had had been caused by putting the airplane in the hangar and then missing it, and, you know, missing the opening and digging it just inside the wingtip uh, and about an inch and a half inboard from the outboard uh, edge of the aileron on the on the back side. Mm-hmm. It was just a little wrinkle, but it cracked the, uh, produced a small crack in the sheet metal. And since it was the airport's bad, it was their, their people doing it, uh, we, we got the aileron fixed. Before we took it someplace else, and the the day that I discovered it, the, the flight was strictly casual and optional, so it didn't it didn't uh, handicap any any important travel. Mm-hmm. Jeb, what about you? Um, I guess two occasions. One, uh, uh, I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Um, August of '02, about three or four months after I got my airplane out of the uh, out of the paint shop, um, it was parked outside on a tie down, and um, thunderstorm came through, dumped a bunch of hail on the on the ramp and, and on my airplane. And I drove out that night because I'd heard that it was a fairly vicious storm, and in fact it was. And uh, a couple of uh, of uh, airplanes got trashed and, and things like that, um, and. Um, I looked at the airplane and it looked okay. I could see, you know, there was some water on it and, and things like this. And the water was kind of, you know, I, I didn't touch it. I didn't, you know, get out and wipe it down or anything like that. But the the, the drops on the airplane were kind of odd looking to me. You know, it was dark and I didn't spend a lot of time. I was it was late at night and I just wanted to get back home. The airplane was still basically in one piece. Um, the next time I looked at it in daylight, it was obvious what was the problem as far as the, the raindrops looking odd on it. But it was rain and dimples on the skin. Mm. And that's a, that's a heart-sinking uh, feeling. Yeah. Uh, make, make a long story short, insurance paid for, for everything because, uh, you know, A, it wasn't in motion. B, we had good insurance. And C, uh, it was clearly something that we all wanted to get fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, then another time, actually, it's funny. It was um, not long after the airplane came out of the paint and body shop again. After the hail damage was repaired, I had a trip down to the Houston area, and flew down to Houston. And I was on the ground down there, maybe thirty-six hours or something like that. And um, I'd asked them to put the airplane in the hangar. Yada yada yada. 
I got the got the airplane out of the hangar, and they had pushed it, um, basically pushed my right tip tank up underneath the left main tank, which is also a tip tank, on a Cessna 310, and put three scratches in the in the top of the tip tank. Oh, okay. And I was just ap- I was just apoplectic. Yeah. Uh, uh, about, but. And at the end of the day, I got to think, I said, you know, by the time I, I finished messing around with these, these morons, um, I'm going to be another day here. And there's no, you know, the, the, it's a scratch. There's scratches. It's not like the, the fiberglass has been compromised or anything like that. So I just said, look, guys, it's been fun. Don't, don't expect to see me again. And uh, got out of there. One of these days, I'll I'll get some sandpaper out and, and I'll fix that little scratch. Yeah, uh-huh. scratch. I, I've told th- th- those kinds of things, and, and that's not you know like like a dent or or you know screwed up aileron or, or or something like that. But it is stuff you see. Yeah, I've told the story before about the buddy of mine who discovered a bullet hole in the uh, in the uh, yeah. upper surface of one of his wings um, because uh, he speculates that this was. Uh, kids shooting off firearms it may have been fourth of july related but in any event it was probably firearms and uh they shoot them into the air and they come down wherever they come down and one of them happened to come down right on my buddy's wing when it was parked on the ramp and uh at least he's pretty sure it was while it was on the ramp and uh so he had a bullet hole on top of his uh and apparently he could hear it rattling around in there when he kind of oh, shook the airplane or something like that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think they probably did get it out of there. They certainly repaired the hole, but uh, I think they reached in somehow and got it out of there, too. So well, what goes in should be able to come yeah, That's out. right. That's right. And I must confess that I was partly responsible for injuring an aircraft like this one time. This was just really foolish and 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 I think not totally my fault, but I was involved. So we were pushing a uh, probably an Archer. Um, this is one of our club airplanes. We were pushing it back into its tie down spot, and uh, I was pushing on the prop, so I was sort of the muscle, if you will. Right. And uh, my the guy who was flying with me also a pilot. Um, in fact, the pilot in command. It was a the mission was I was safety pilot for him doing some IFR training. Um, so he was in theory guiding me back. And uh, what I don't know how we just sort of spaced on the fact that there was a vehicle parked in the area mm-hmm. immediately behind where the mm-hmm. tail ends up of our airplane. And because we pushed back about, well, 12 inches further than we, than we could have, than we should have, and one inch further than we really, really should have, um, we ran the trailing edge of the, of the vertical, of uh, the tail, uh, mm-hmm. into the back the tailgate of this truck this oh, wow. suv we didn't hurt it that bad fortunately all right but we kind of we, there was sort of a a one inch thick bend in you know just kind of a slight bend in the trailing edge of 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 about maybe four inches of the of the tail and uh so we just sort of had had additional uh, additional uh, uh trim correction is what i looked at it <laughs> you know? well, i had a deal very similar to that um I was um, in the Civil Air Patrol at the time and um, had gone out for a required checkride uh, with a CFI. And uh, we were pushing the airplane back into its tie-down. And I was at the prop, and he was at a wingtip or, or somewhere else. Uh, I don't remember exactly where he was. And we ended up pushing it into a tie-down rod that was sticking out of the ground about two or three feet. Yeah. Uh, 
and basically just kind of crumped the trailing edge of, of the elevator. I don't know how that was ever repaired. Um, but again, you know, it was the kind of thing where I was doing the, the, I was providing the motive power. I was not piloting command. And, uh, hey, guys, really sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, well, at, uh, at, uh, at the airport where I was at the other day, about 15 minutes later after they made this announcement, the uh, guy came back on and said, he said, well, they haven't quite figured out what it is yet, but since it's going to take at least three or four hours to repair this, if they can even repair it on site, we're going to cancel the flight. So, flights mm-hmm. and such is canceled, and they started to give them all directions on how to go find another airplane ride. So... Uh, don't you love the airlines? That's what I, you know, as a matter of fact, lately, I really do love the airlines, quote, quote, unquote, love the airlines. Yeah. But before we get into that, let me say welcome, folks, to uh, episode 159 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on Sunday evening, November 1st, 2009, and uh, we have an interesting arrangement here in the virtual hangar tonight. Uh, uh, joining me in the hangar uh, is, uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. How you doing, Jeb? I am just fine. It's It's been a fairly relaxing weekend. Uh, um, looking forward to hitting the, hitting the ground running tomorrow. You were all kinds um, of cranky last week, I'll tell you. I was all kinds of cranky, and, and um, um, I, I, you know... I, um, what can I say? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't enough. even have brought it not, up. I'm glad you're enough. in a good mood yeah, now. You, you shouldn't have brought it up. I don't want okay. you to go back like, there. Please don't go back don't there. Wanna, don't wanna, you don't want to see the bad side of me. <laughs> That's right. Um, now he's uncranked. Now right. I'm uncranked. Now he's uncranked. Yeah. Um, I didn't have enough beer or something last week. I don't know what it was. Right, whatever it was. And, of course, also here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon, who is also joining us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. So, uh, well, first of all, hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good. I'm I'm joining you from somewhere in the vicinity of Jim Burnside. That's I, I right. I'll say good, about 35 feet. Yeah. So let me explain the situation. Um, uh, 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 Dave is back down in Florida for uh, this week for the uh, AOPA uh, uh, AV, what do they call it? Aviation Summit, I think is what the they call Aviation it now. Summit, right. um, so Dave's back down there, and he is actually this time a house guest of, of Jeb. Um, Wait, but, what? He's a house guest? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, Who let it, that happen? <laughs> you mean he's staying here? I snuck <sighs> in through the back side. So you'd think that having Jeb and Dave near each other would somehow make it easier to do the podcast. It turns out it makes it technologically harder to do the podcast. We originally were going to have, we don't have the gear for them to just have two microphones and be attached to the same computer. We just don't have that set up. So the plan A was uh, to have them both on separate computers connected to Skype separately just the way they normally do, except that instead of being in Florida and Wichita, they'd be in the, you know, Jeb's home office and Jeb's dining room, right? Um, we tried that about, uh, about 15, 20 minutes ago, and, uh, and although it worked for just a little bit, um, it eventually fell apart for various technological reasons. Yeah, there's, a, there's some hardware issues. So yeah. far, the internet connection what didn't, was, didn't seem to be the problem, yeah. although I could tell where it was starting to flip. Yeah, I think, I think that would have ultimately been our downfall one way or the other. Putting you know, Regular listeners will know how hard... Uh, I don't know. The internet connection seldom flakier than the participants. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the upshot is that, uh, that Jeb's on his regular Skype internet, Internet connection, but Dave is talking to us on a regular telephone, a landline telephone. That's why Dave's sound quality is a little bit uh, not what you would you would expect or not what you're used to. So uh, that's what we're. As long as I don't sound like Lurch. That's right. So uh, it's uh, it's not quite our usual uh, uh, excellent quality, but everybody can be understood. So that's good. And I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. And. Uh, 
UCAP World Headquarters. UCAP World Headquarters. So, anyways, what's going on here? Oh, okay, first of all, um, about four or five months ago, uh, I called attention to the fact that that, at that time, it was the 20th anniversary of my first flight, my first flying lesson, and that was very exciting uh, to be remembering back then. Well, uh, this past week on Tuesday... Um, was the 20th anniversary of my first solo, which many people have told me, uh, had checked in to say that they felt like first solo was really the first time you're like a pilot. And I guess I kind of agree with that. So uh, We also uh, mark that as the era when general aviation endured a sea change. And <laughs> That's right. That was, that was the beginning of a long, long change. Chain events. Look out, because Hodgson's in the air now. Uh, uh, October 27th, 1989. Um, I'm reading from my logbook, which I have in my little hands here. Cessna 152, uh, Niner 33316. Uh, at first, uh, the bulk of the flight was a traditional uh, dual training lesson. We flew from Palo Alto to Oakland uh, and then to San Jose. Obviously, we were doing uh, what at, then, at the time was called ARSA uh, procedures training. Uh, now would be known as uh, Class Charlie uh, airspace training. Um, Instead of an airport radar service area. That's right. So we uh, we flew to Oakland and then to San Jose and then back to Palo Alto where we uh, taxied. And it's, it was a classic situation because for a few lessons prior to this, I had been ready for him to get out. And I, you know, and I kept, you know, it's like, are you going to do it today? Are you going to do it today? And he wasn't doing it that day. And then this particular day, it didn't even occur to me that he was going to do it. And uh, I thought we were taxiing. I thought we were done. And he said, taxi over to the bench. And, uh, and once he said, taxi over to the bench, there's this observation bench at Palo Alto. Once he said that, I knew what was going to happen. And I'm going, and at first I'm going, oh, crap, you know, and then, yeah. and, but then, you you know, I mean, and, and most every pilot, student pilot, I've ever talked to about, or every pilot I've talked to reminiscing about their student days has said the same thing, and that is that after you get get over the kind of brief initial shock of it all, mm-hmm. then you just, it, you know, you know how to fly the airplane by this point, you know? And, yeah, by this, uh, by this point, you're going to go back out and you're going to do three more times that mm-hmm. which you've been doing all day today, yep. and that you were doing for probably the, la- the previous two lessons, which is just perfecting and working on uh, your touch and goes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and with the big difference being that it's suddenly a, an instructor lighter, right? And charges down the runway more quickly and climbs with more enthusiasm. Yep, and, yep, yep. And, and if, if you're like most people, you have a brief moment there where you're going, "Holy crap! I don't recognize this airplane." Yeah, I know. It, it definitely was a little bit peppier. And uh, although, in other ways, uh, and again, other people have said the same thing to me that uh, that it was like my instructor was still there because I still heard his voice, you know, going, you know. Right rudder, right rudder, you know, or you know, <laughs> you know, track the track the the center line, you know, or you know, or whatever. And uh, um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. It was very exciting, and uh, and it was uh, twenty years ago this past week. So that's pretty cool. Well, congratulations! Obviously, I learned how to fly when I was six. Um, let's see now. That was in dog years, right? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know what? So I'm paying for, for the past year and a half, I've been telling from time to time about various stories of my adventures, if you will, um, in airline travel for work. And, <laughs> and, and I, and I've, 
you know, everyone tells these horror stories about traveling on the airlines, and for a year and a half, I was doing fine. I never had any problems at all, all right? Now well, they're sh- playing catch-up with you. Yeah, well, I should have realized that this was going to come around eventually. They, they subscribed to this podcast. Because a week ago Friday, I had this, uh, <laughs> this uh, situation where I... Uh, where I was trapped at O'Hare for uh, the better part of a day, like six and a half, seven hours waiting for a flight. Uh, And then this past Wednesday, uh, I was trying to return from Philadelphia. I should have known Philadelphia, right? Um, And and about 45 minutes before my flight, uh, they came on and said, uh, and it was a crappy day. I mean, it was was more than overcast. You know, the clouds were pretty low. I was watching the airplanes take off, and they were disappearing into the clouds pretty quickly after takeoff. And uh, it had been raining for a couple of days, and apparently it was a large weather, you know, system. Um, They said said that uh, the flight was canceled due to weather. And uh, and that was the beginning of this was a four hour wait uh, for uh, a flight that they wouldn't even begin to guarantee was going to go off because the, they said oh the weather could still be bad you know now here's my question for you guys all right because I didn't think the weather was real I mean the weather wasn't great all right um, but it wasn't all that bad if you ask me all right um, and do the airlines have different minimums for weather how does that work i mean you know yes and no if if it's a new um uh captain um in the airplane he has higher minimums than oh. uh, uh the, the 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 lowest standard minimum for the approach for uh, uh for the airport um just call it a high men's captain and that's maybe 100 hours i don't know for how long that happens it depends on the carrier depends on the equipment depends on the, on the captain i'm not sure if that also applies to fo's i do not think it does um but uh you, you, your note here says uh, uh manchester was uh, 800 and a mile and a half 800 over and a mile and a half visibility right I don't know what the um, I, I would presume that uh, Manchester has an ILS, yeah, which is two hundred and a half. Um, the eight hundred and, and mile and a half strikes me as uh, uh, above any low men's. Uh, um, yeah, this was this was. I mean, I was sitting there fuming because. You know, I went to the the service counter where they rebooked my flight, and they gave me this song and dance, you know, about, well, they they rebooked me for like four hours later. And then he goes, and, you know, this this one might get canceled, too, he's going, and I'm I'm starting to really see a little bit here. And, And so I said to the guy, I said, at what point does this kind of thing rise to the level of there being some sort of compensation involved? And he looked at me like I was, you know an idiot like just arrived from mars yeah, yeah uh, I, because he said he said oh no it's it's weather it's not our you know i forget the exact words but he said it's weather it's not our fault and and then he he and then he said there was weather at both ends he says it's not just here well, it's at the other end right, yeah. too all right and where where you were at manchester at the time no i was at philadelphia trying to get back to philly, manchester and, and the weather at philly was was 800 over in a mile and a half no no you don't know what manchester was you don't know what do they have equipment on the ground, or was it still had it not yet arrived? No, it was, was sitting it? there. It was sitting there, and it arrived, and it was. And other other uh, uh, U.S. Airways, I'll say it out loud, U.S. Airways flights were going out just fine. All right, you were going from Philly to Manchester. Correct. Wow. And Manchester was 800 and a mile and a half because I looked it up when he said this to me. What was what was Philly? And Philly, I don't have the spec, but it was. It was uh, lower than that. It was probably lower than that, but it wasn't anything. I mean, it was probably, 
I mean, I could see you know, well across you know, the airport looking been, out the windows. It could have been a combination of things. It could have been uh, um, kind of uh, think about this. Uh, commercial ops uh, have to have a, a takeoff alternate sometimes. Yep. And they may have had a situation where uh, the takeoff alternates for which they had fuel uh, were below the high men's captain. Okay. Uh, the flip side of which is, with Manchester down like that, they would have had to, uh, they would have needed an alternate for Manchester also. Exactly. Uh, they could have getting got into a situation where, with a high men's captain, uh, all the alternates were below minimums too. It's hard to it's hard to you know analyze from here, but there's a lot of different variables going on. So what I'm hearing here is that maybe U.S. Airways was not acting unreasonably. Well, come on! I want them to be jerks. I want them to be. What what they did is is they scrubbed the flight. You know, and we're presuming that they had a high men's captain situation. We don't know that for certain. No, we don't know that. Uh, uh, the weather clearly was flyable um, there was some other operational consideration that they had that f that made them decide to cancel that flight or, or reschedule it or whatever they did it could have been as simple as um, you know hey you know uh, we don't have enough people on this airplane and we're going to hold it here and the next one going out that, that suits this equipment is going to be full to the gills and we won't waste the gas for what it's worth, I know that they canceled another. So I ended up on a 4 o'clock flight. I was originally on 11.30 in the morning. They rebooked me for 4. I discovered subsequently that there was a 2 o'clock uh, Philly to Manchester flight that got canceled as well. So I don't know. They, were, they, were, they did this more than once. Anyways. When they're working on, their, on getting their certificate of, uh, uh, to, to operate, they create uh, a whole volume of documents, operational specifications. And in their op specs, they lay out uh, parameters for certain things like this. I mean, th there are no such limitations on typical general aviation flights, although corporate operators frequently will lay out some operational specifications of their own that will say that, you know, we don't want you taking off at 200 and a half a mile um, because there's a chance it'll be below that if you have to come back. Right. Or there may not be an alternate to which they can divert if they have to come back. Yeah. Uh, and all that stuff gets factored in. Uh, that said, there's been folks at the airline business acknowledge, and, and the, the, the bosses all denied it, that, uh, economics come into play in gray areas, where well we could we could we, we could maybe do it, uh, but we the op spec says that well we need one more thing to meet it, but the flight's light if we cancel it and roll them onto the next one, and remember the crew don't get paid for hanging around, hmm. so they save money on 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 labor there as well as fuel and landing fees. So the uh, the uh, economics can, if not, uh, be the outright reason why they do it, uh, why they cancel a, a flight. Uh, economics can help tip the scales when they're in a gray area. 
which means it should rise to the level of compensation. But probably well, not weather, there, 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 yeah, you're not going to get compensated for yeah, that. Yeah, I know. Weather and maintenance are the two issues where the uh, the FAA gives them a lot of leeway. And, uh, you know, you, the, the tent in the airplane thing yeah. could have been one of those where it's clearly okay, but we're going to wait on Bombardier just to be on the safe side, and that, that'll let us cancel a flight, and we'll row those people over someplace else. And but you know, you know what the punchline in all this is? What's that? Remind me, Jack, never to travel with you by airline. Yeah, well, no, I was doing good for a long time, but twice in five days I got stranded. Oh, well, I'm traveling again on Tuesday morning, so we'll see how that one goes. Oh, okay, Tuesday morning. Well, this, I, I, I will be on the lookout. Okay. This past, this past Wednesday, I had to venture myself out to uh, San Diego. Uh, on the ticket, uh, routed me through Denver. And, you know, as luck would have it, Denver had a snowstorm that morning and that noon and that afternoon. Now, I have this habit of, I generally like to be in early and, and then I can find things to keep myself busy if I've got to kill time between when I get there and, and, and when the work starts. So I'd book myself out on an O-Dark 30. i got to go through Denver. It's winter. Uh Best not to roll the dice. Uh, improves the chance of same-day service, if you will. Uh, gentleman that I was meeting in San Diego, also coming out of Wichita, uh, had booked a flight in the early afternoon. And the snow in Denver was already complicating things to the point where at my check-in at 6 a.m., the... Uh, nice ladies behind the counter had to run a couple of extra lines of uh, keystrokes through their computers to make sure that my flight from Denver to San Diego hadn't been canceled because some flights had already been canceled. Uh, so I wound up long and short being about 20, 25 minutes behind schedule to get into San Diego, and that was it. Uh, I was still there in the morning Pacific uh, daylight time. The gentleman that I was supposed to meet in San Diego, uh, he wound up on a uh, flight that was late to the point where he missed his connection and had to be rebooked. And because of how things had compounded, snowballed, if you will, through the day, uh, he wound up being somewhere in a neighborhood of six and a half hours later than he'd initially planned. Uh, now, basically the same weather conditions throughout, but the compounding effect of delays and cancellations and all that, uh, I made it 25 minutes behind schedule. He made it six hours behind schedule. Mm -hmm. And the only difference was I left eight hours ahead of him. Yeah. Didn't you say at one point that there was some issue with avionics on the aircraft? That One of the aircraft was uh, my... my Wichita to Denver flight was a uh, uh, De Havilland Dash 8 Q400. Uh, that's a that's a, that's a big twin engine turboprop, and uh, the AHARS tripped off. Attitude heading reference system that feeds the electronic box pitch and roll and air t uh, at, at attitude yaw information. Uh, it's all solid state, very fancy schmancy. It's what drives 
some the form of this technology is what drives all the glass cockpit displays on the primary flight side. Uh, and we were on the brink of having to taxi back to the terminal where the captain had said, we're going to sh- taxi back to the t- gate, shut down everything, and then go through restart and see if it comes back up and be sitting back in, you know, 13 Foxtrot. I'm like, but you don't have to go back to the gate to shut everything off. You can shut down the electrical system completely and leave the engines running. And then try bringing everything up from there. And ultimately, that's apparently what happened because we stopped short of a runway that we needed permission to cross and there was arriving traffic. And by the time the traffic arrived, passed, and we were cleared to head on to the gate, the Ahars had come back up. They had their flight displays, and we boogied on out of there, and we were only about 15 minutes late getting into Denver. Uh, in Denver, we were a long time getting through the de-icing rigs, and the airplanes were all going through de-icing. Uh, we were so long getting through de-icing that some of the early parts of the aircraft, that is early in the de-icing process, it already started to develop a little bit of ice again on the uh, slats, on the leading edge slats. But as soon as the uh, the flight crew extended the slats, that all came off. So uh, it was interesting to watch the gentleman de-icing my side of the uh, airplane. He approached it like a sniper, you know, a little <laughs> precise shot here, wait and see what happens, a little precise shot there. Uh the guy on the other side basically started at the tip and ran a constant spray of de-icing, and this is heated fluid, de-icing fluid from the tip inboard to the root in one long, wavy pass, and he moved on. The other guy covered the span of his wing about three times before he actually touched all of it with de-icing fluid. So uh, then he was even longer getting the back half of the fuselage and the tail done. So. I think he was paid by the squirt, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, paid by the squirt. No, that's, no, no, no. Let's not. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move on. Between that and the warm nuts thing, I, you know, I think we're. <laughs> let's we're... move on. Um, so, uh, David, you're back down in Florida to go to the AOPA Aviation Summit. Uh, Jeb, are you going to get up there as well, or? Uh, yes, I am. It's uh, in... Dave's going up uh, Wednesday, as I recall. Starts on Thursday. It's in Tampa, be... right? Right, yeah, Tampa. Yeah. an hour fifty from the house. It's not that big a deal. Uh, Dave's going up Wednesday. Uh, well, overnight, uh, a couple of nights. I'll go up Thursday, and overnight um, uh, Thursday night, Friday night. Yeah. So, what are we expecting? Anything interesting? Um, to be determined. Uh huh. There's going to be some new avionics hardware there. I understand. Uh, Maybe a new LSA or two there. Uh, maybe one LSA there that uh, has, is known of and has been displayed but has never shown up as a flying example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it will be showing itself at some uh, demo flights out of Tampa Executive, I understand. Uh, and a number of, uh, number of little panels and workshops. Uh, a lot of this is kind of uh, new for all of us because uh, since Craig Fuller became the president of AOPA back on January 1, uh, the association has changed a few things that it's done in the past, and one of them is to recast 
what had been AOPA Expo, uh, you know, a pilot convention and trade show into the AOPA Summit. And that change in name is not strictly cosmetic and it, it, it does imply some changes in what they want to do at the time there. So, uh, there'll be some meetings with other groups that we haven't normally seen in the past and some participation by other groups that we haven't seen in the past. Uh, and they've got a boatload of stuff that's going to be on display at Peter O'Night, Tampa's Peter O'Night Airport near the convention center. So, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how it uh, how it all shakes out. Mm-hmm. Now, MBAA just finished, and it was I, I don't want to I don't know exactly what phrase to you. I wanted to say ho hum. It was just kind of uh, it was down. You know, it was down. It was kind of a little not depressed exactly necessarily, but uh, it wasn't an upbeat, excited show this year. MBAA. Uh, do we expect a similar thing at AOPA or? I don't really have a feel. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't either. I, Conventional, no, I wasn't there, and Dave can chime in any time. Uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom, the feedback that I've heard from people who did attend uh, was that NBAA was down maybe 25%. Um, yeah, that, that's about what they reported. That uh, um, one, one attendee I spoke with last week had mentioned that uh, on Wednesday afternoon, the, the, uh, the exhibit hall was, was uh, not well populated. Um, which kind of tends to mean Thursday afternoon was really quiet. Uh, um, exhibitor uh, bonding day, as they, as they sometimes call it at the trade shows. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, given the market that the NBAA show uh, targets. Um, I'm not sure uh, all those same reasons exist for the AOPA show. Um, I, I think it'll be it'll be down uh, compared to. You know the last couple of years of the AOPA Expo, uh, but this year's summit is—I don't think it's going to be down that much. Uh, is, is maybe the best I, best way I can put it. Um, well, they, they've got a good venue. Yeah, they've got a good venue. It's the right time of year, um, and uh, I suspect that they'll do okay. They're—they're they're certainly not going to have their best year ever. They're not going to have their worst year ever either. Mm-hmm. Well, and. You know, aside from NBAA being down as much as it was, a number of the vendors reported that they were doing a pretty brisk business because there were fewer gawkers and, you know, people that were sent to the convention as kind of a a perk by their employer. Uh And they were really there to just browse the aisles and sit in on one of the workshops, but they weren't really the people who sign contracts and write checks. That's an interesting perspective, yeah. Uh, so th- there was some satisfaction in the level of business that was done there. Uh, there was also the shift that we talked about last week where uh, uh, Cessna and Hawker Beach not having a, uh exhibit at all on the exhibit hall floor in the convention center, focusing all their efforts out at the static display at uh, Orlando Executive. Uh, and some feeling that that drew off crowds. But, you know, in light of all that, it bears remembering that neither... Uh, Sun and Fun nor Oshkosh suffered the kind of crowd declines in 09 versus 08 that we saw in NBAA, and I think that's very reflective of a uh, business that's uh, had some really tough political storms to weather, uh, in addition to the economic storms to weather, and 
you know, the, the conventional wisdom being that when the economy does well, business aviation does well. When the economy sucks, business aviation doesn't do as well. So this is going to be kind of a, an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, unless there's anything else you want to kind of uh, have us keep an eye on, um, we'll move on here, and you guys can report back next week when we get together again. We're going to do this again next week? Yep. Oh, cool. Probably. Probably. Um, hey, let's, wow. Let's when did we start doing it weekly? David, you uh, you put this on the list. This is from uh, from a couple of weeks ago. I think this is a holdover from MBAA, as a matter of fact. The little mini headline you put in our list is, No Way to Treat Our Pros. There's my train. I don't know if you can hear that. Um, no, way to, no Way to Treat Our Pros. David, can you tell us what uh, what struck you about this story? Well, yeah. Uh, first off, uh, yeah, this does go back. The catalyst to it was three weeks ago when... Uh, when uh, uh, Captain uh, Chesley Sully Sullenberger appeared on uh, the Daily, Star- Daily Show with John Stewart, which is one of my regular uh, addictions, and then two days later on National Public Radio's Diane Reams show, a uh, uh, topical interview show, and you know one of the things that uh, Captain Sullenberger talked on both instances was the uh, change in how the uh, uh, airline business treats its personnel, uh, cancellation of, of pensions, abrogation of labor contracts through uh, bankruptcies. Uh, and then this story in the New York Times was brought to my attention by one of my friends at uh, 800 Independence in the Friendly Aviators Administration in D.C. Uh, and it talks about a, uh, a commercial airline captain, as they put it, who's taken about a 50% pay cut in the last year, uh, but he still has a job. He doesn't really have a pension plan, but he's got a job. And if he can find a way to save money for a pension out of the uh, $34,000 that he makes a year as an airline captain, it's it's disturbing, and Captain Sullenberger talked about it too. That uh, you know, once upon a time, airline captains uh, uh, commanded airline crews commanded big respect. Uh, airline crews were uh, uh, well paid, and uh, what I would say, on a level commensurate with the responsibility that goes from having anywhere from fifty to four hundred and fifty souls sitting behind you for which you're responsible as the as as the uh, crew of the flight crew of the airplane uh, some of it is typical american business we can make more if we squeeze more out of the people uh some of it is uh an unfortunate fallout from the change in the industry itself that is it got really big, carrying a lot of people in a lot of airplanes, and inspired a lot of people to go to school to some of them, you know, pilot mills, if you will, mm-hmm. where they promised you a, a, a right seat ride on a regional after as few as 250 hours. And, uh, you know, if, down from the days when 1,500 hours or 2,500 hours was required to be an airline captain, uh, down to in a right seat in 250 hours, and a year later you could possibly be in the left seat with 1,100 hours total time. Uh, 
crappy pay that, that is so bad for some of these folks that they're commuting huge distances on the airlines to be able to live someplace where their money will go far enough to keep a roof over their head. Well, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, is the uh, uh, the fatal crash up in Buffalo right. earlier this year, uh, involving the, the Q400, I believe it was, and um, um, the first off, both the first officer and the captain were were relatively young and relatively underpaid compared with their counterparts uh, flying heavier, faster, or larger equipment. The flight, I'm sorry, the first officer specifically in this in this accident, uh, I think was getting paid about sixteen grand a year. Yep. Uh, lived with her parents on the west coast. Sixteen one six. One six thousand dollars a year to ride right seat in a scheduled uh, turboprop. In other a words, seventy seat turboprop. Seventy seat turboprop. A one twenty part one twenty one operation. A major airline logo painted on the side of it. Uh, the woman um, certainly was old enough. Certainly had um, you know hours to to get through the check rides and. And the training and the, and the certificates to to legally occupy that seat, um, but she's basically making minimum wage. She uh, had to live with her parents in, I believe, Seattle or somewhere in the Seattle area, as I recall, uh, and commuted uh, using her uh, her uh, past privileges to, um, I guess, New York or, or it was Boston and New York or LaGuardia, whatever it was. It was one um, of the New York area airports. Yeah, yeah, I think it was one of the New York area airports to, to start her duty day. And um, there's just something wrong uh, with, with the system when uh, otherwise qualified people and, and, uh, um, are, are paid so little that they would be eligible for food stamps. Uh, um, and that's, you know, we, we can, we can talk about this till the cows come home and we probably will. Um, it's not the way, <laughs> yeah. it, it's not the best way to attract and retain qualified people, uh, for a safety critical function. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, worth, Sullenberger's worth, right. We have to do better. It's worth pointing out that, uh, you know, there's a lot of, Corporate aviation, corporate cockpit jobs, of which there are quite a few fewer right now than a year, eighteen months ago, just because of the overall downturn. But the uh, median income for these folks, you know, sometimes flying equipment that costs uh, fifty-five, sixty million dollars. If you're flying a Boeing BBJ, uh, Boeing business jet. That's a 737, kiddies. Uh, the fact that you don't have a couple hundred souls in the back notwithstanding, it's still a lot of responsibility. And they do overall so much better in that business than their counterparts wearing an airline uniform. And these guys are going to be wearing a uniform most of the time anyway. Uh, two young friends of mine could not be more different in their view of this. Uh, one of them... Uh, is trying to stay on in the uh, Air Force because he couldn't find an airline job. And this was back when uh, corporate cockpits couldn't get filled fast enough. Right. You know, they were going begging for people, practically. It's one of the reasons why their salary scales were as good as they were. 
And he, he literally turned up his nose at the idea because he'd been flying heavy iron in the Air Force. He was flying tankers, uh, basically Boeing 707 airliners fitted out as gas stations and, 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 and uh, cargo planes. Uh, because, well, most people can't ever make the kind of money that an airline captain makes. And I was like, what airline captains are you talking about? <laughs> or, you know, well, an American, a Delta, United, none of whom would hire him. Uh, another young man, same neighborhood, about the same age, who put himself through an accelerated program at Kansas State University's Aviation Center in Salina, Kansas, uh, he had to spend a lot of money that he had in a savings account. He had to work side jobs, but in two and a half years, he came out. Uh, he started out, he was already a private pilot, and he was uh, able to finish his uh, CFI, CFII, his, get his commercial, uh, his multi-engine, his ATP. And he's flying for a uh, major, well, not a major, he's flying for a significant charter outfit based out of Wichita, with three jets and a turboprop. And their operations are down, uh, noticeably, down about 20%. But he's still making the same money. Uh, he hasn't been furloughed. Uh, and he's making more than our other friend that wanted to go for, to work for the airlines would have been making for the first seven or eight years of his career. Uh, so it's always difficult for me to understand the guys that look at it and go, well, that's, you know, that's a little jet. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to fly the big important stuff. And I say, cool, starve to death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we should move on here, but I, I want to ask one more, one more last question, I hope. Um, Jeb, you're the safety guy. Has anybody measured uh, a correlation between these lower paid uh, ranks of pilots and, and actual safety results? No, uh, there may be some studies out there, but uh, um, the FAA hasn't formally taken notice of anything like that, the correlating pay to safety. And uh, it would be very, very hard to do, I think. Um, even if the, the, uh, the methodology of such a study could be uh, crafted, um, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. There's always going to be situations where, okay, yeah, the FO was was making sixteen grand, but the captain was making one hundred and sixty grand, and uh, you know that's that's one of the reasons they didn't crash or something like that. Right. Um, well, we we and do the airlines there's are, a correlation between low pay and pilot turnover. Right. Which costs the airlines a huge amount of money because these people have to be trained and brought up to speed right. for that airline's op specs. And turnover is extremely expensive in those circumstances. And ask an executive about this years ago, why not pay people more uh, to see if you don't keep more of them and cut down the cost of hiring and training replacements? And this outfit had a, a, a 75% turnover rate yeah. year over year. At, at the end of the day, though, you got to keep in mind, and I'm not trying to put my free market hat on or anything like that, but at the end of the day, um, they're paying the airlines are paying their their pilots what the market will bear. Uh, if if that woman had not taken that job at sixteen grand, somebody else would have. Right. It's a uh, it's a buyer's market. It's a it's a buyer's market exactly. And um, I thought there was a shortage of pilots. Where'd you hear that? 
I don't know. Wasn't, haven't they been moaning for a while that there are fewer pilot starts, and as a result, they're concerned that there won't be enough pilots 10 years down there, the line? There might be fewer pilot starts, um, but we're not talking about a starting level uh, pilot type of job here. Um, I'm just guessing. I don't know anything about this woman's career uh, or the captain's uh, career, but I'm guessing that she probably started um, uh, maybe at a puppy farm. Maybe she started as a civilian, just taking flying lessons, and decided, hey, you know, I wouldn't mind doing this for for a career. Um, you know, I, um, didn't get into law school, or not going to get into med school, or hey, you know, maybe I could be just be an airline pilot and fly and and, and do that kind of thing. So. You know, he or she, in this case, she is willing to take on uh, um, a reduced uh, uh, income to, to climb the ladder and, and do everything that uh, uh, we've all been told is, is uh, the, uh, uh, the way up the ladder uh, within the airlines. Um, that may well be true, but it's, it's kind of the, the same situation uh, that we have in medicine that has recently gotten a lot of attention um, where you have um, med students, uh, in, internists maybe, I, I don't know the correct term, residents, whatever, uh, working in hospitals and they're working like 48-hour shifts yeah. and 36-hour shifts or something like that. And um, there's been some studies recently about, you know, why are they doing this and what's the What's the trend in efficiency and in correct decision-making over uh, the shift for that medical professional? And in their, they, they being other, others in the medical establishment, are raising legitimate questions of, of, is this the best way to do this kind of training? Is this the best way that we can craft for uh, these young, uh, inexperienced medical professionals to get uh, experience and to become older, well-experienced medical professionals? And that jury, I'm, I'm not up on the research, but that jury, I think, is still out. I think the same things apply in aviation. Is this the best way that we can find putting safety in the equation as opposed to just pure economics? Is this the best we can do to make sure that uh, um, um, the, these flights get to their destinations on time and right side up? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on here, but that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. I, uh, it's a puzzle. It is. It's a puzzle. So it doesn't, uh, have to, it doesn't affect as much as general aviation pilots, except for the concerns when ourselves or our loved ones are on board those human mailing tubes. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. I, I chuckle at that, but Dave's absolutely right. Um, um, we can talk about this some more. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of people have been uh, commenting uh, in the forums and an email to me about uh, the, our discussion a couple episodes ago about uh, me buying an airplane and how I became enamored of a 150 that I came across at uh, at uh, Sanford. Um, and I just wanted to kind of give people an update on this. Uh, so the latest is that I've basically decided that the 150 is not the way I'm going to go. Um, it, Thinking seriously about the 150 was actually a very useful exercise because it 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 kind of forced me to really consider my mission, and I sort of had considered my mission, but it had been very very uh, very academic up to that point, you know. And uh, um, as I started to picture myself flying the 150, although I love flying 150s and 152s, 
Um, I also know that that I want I want to do more long distance flying these days, and uh, and and although you can do that in a 150 in a small aircraft, it it probably wasn't going to work out. It wasn't wasn't really what I was looking for. So, uh, so the latest on my uh, airplane shopping is that I've sort of fine tuned my spec, and I think as I put it to you, Jeb, the other day in an, in an email, I said that uh, my my spec now is uh, high wing, four seats, one hundred and eighty horsepower. And uh, I don't know why you want the wing on the wrong side. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Get over it. Um, I know exactly why. So he can look down on that over which he is flying. Exactly. I, that's exactly I've why. Jack, I've been with Jack enough to know that that's one of the most enjoyable parts of it all for him. I like watching the ground go by. You abs- absolutely. So uh, so that's my spec. And uh, the the uh, the flirting with the 150 was a very useful exercise in terms of thinking about the reality of it. But uh, I think I've got a, a more firm picture in my mind now. And so that's that's where I am. I need to. I, it's, I, it's interesting that we, we get on this tonight. Uh, earlier this evening, Dave and I were out in the hangar, and um, one of my neighbors pulled up, and he and I hadn't talked in a couple of months. And last time he and I talked, uh, the guy is not a pilot. His wife is not a pilot, but he lives, you know, on a residential airport. So it's kind of like mm, maybe I should start learning how to fly because it sure looks like fun and and it's it can be awfully convenient. He has to travel around the state on business and, and for personal reasons occasionally. And uh, we he and I had been talking informally and I'd thrown him uh, uh, some resource materials and you know a copy of trade a plane and things like that. Uh, he had been talking about buying an airplane and uh, he wheeled in this afternoon and, and he says, "Hey, I just wanted to let you know I bought an airplane." And he's okay. like, I said, great. You know, what'd you do? What'd you do? What? And he bought a, a 1960 model Cessna 150. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Nice airplane. Um, it's, it's probably the fastest and lightest of the, of the one fifties out there. And, uh, I, I was kind of, uh, um, surprised not that, um, not that he would, uh, buy an airplane as much as he would buy a 150. I had been trying to get him towards a 172 or a, or a 182, actually. Mm-hmm. And I felt 182, uh, he's not a, 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 an insubstantial person, um, but he, he and his wife both want to learn how to fly. And you know the minute they both get, or one of them anyway, gets their ticket, and the other one's maybe still a student, or once they both get their tickets, they're going to want to go places. And um, looking at the runway that he want, he would want to use here, uh, looking at um, uh, the places they might want to go, and, and the fact that he's a busy professional, we're certainly not going to get him a bonanza, but um, um, he needs a simple airplane, but one with some some legs and whatnot. And I was I was trying to steer him towards 182. I think eventually he'll get there if if he follows through with the 150. And the way he explained the decision making was. Um, you know, if he, and he got it for sixteen grand. It's like two thousand hour airframe, uh, two hundred fifty hours on the engine, hmm. uh, beautiful paint, beautiful interior for sixteen grand, and it was you know twenty miles up the road. Uh, and and Dave and I both agree that next time we go airplane shopping, we're going to let this guy do it for us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, um, that, that's great, you know. And and uh, I look forward. He, he's still getting some things done to it. It's going to. Uh, and because his instructor is over at this other airport, he's not going to have it. He doesn't, he doesn't have a hangar here either yet. Um, but uh, um, it, it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm, I'm going to enjoy watching this for sure. Yeah. Oh, and that price included a free year, or uh, included a year's hangar. Oh, yeah. 
Wow, really? Oh, maintenance too, something. Maintenance yeah. and a hangar. I don't know what the deal was, but again, I'm going to let him do my airplane wow. shopping from now on. Me too. That's great. That yeah, was we'll 16 grand, anyway. according to him. Yeah, cool. Cool. So, anyways, that's the latest on my thing, which means that that you know I'm still a ways off from from buying. My sort of goal is to be really seriously thinking about this next spring and summer. Um, and, well, uh, let me let me tell you why that's not the right. Keep your eyes open for that surprise deal. Yeah. Okay. Jeb, go ahead. First of all, that's the wrong answer because everybody and their mother is going to be looking to try to buy an airplane next spring, figuratively speaking. Um, and um, it's going to artificially drive up prices. If not, it's certainly going to increase demand. And, uh, and if you find an airplane you're looking for, uh, if you don't jump on it in the spring, someone else is going to. Now's the right time to buy an airplane. Now's the right time to buy a motor, used motorcycle or, or a new motorcycle for that matter because we're getting into winter and people want to cut their losses and they'll give you a deal on something. Same thing with airplanes. Or houses um, or... Not, or, or, or houses or boats, you know, whatever. Um, not trying to push you in any direction at all, but I don't think it's true that spring is a better time to buy an airplane. It's, it, I, I'm not picking spring because I think it's seasonally the right time to buy an airplane. I'm picking spring because that's when my finances will come together, I think, uh, to uh, to make this doable. But uh, but we'll talk more about that's this. That's as good a reason as any, but, you know. Yeah. But we'll talk more about this. Uh and- Another yeah. thing, too, and it's something I pointed out in an email between the three of us this week. Is there, there are other options available to you, Jack, than just outright buying an airplane for your own. I know. Business. You talk about partnerships and whatnot. Yeah. I, I, we, we need to have that conversation on a different episode. Yeah, let's have that conversation on a different episode because my concern about – well, if I say my concern, we'll start this conversation now. Let's let's put this on the list for next week or something like that. We'll talk more about – the 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 uh, pros and cons of of being in a shared ownership situation as opposed to a, a sole ownership situation. Moving on. Um, so uh, Jeb, you called our attention. What did you? How did you characterize this in the in the uh, GPS brownout? You suddenly panicked. You go, Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my GPSs. We talked about this about a couple months ago. Well, we we have and we haven't. Um, um, this is something I came across. Uh, uh, James Fallows, who uh, uh, writes for the Atlantic Magazine, right. has, a, has a fairly uh, nice blog up on that that uh, magazine's website. And he's also um, a pilot. And he's also a pilot. He was one of the first people to own a Cirrus. He uh, he, he bought one of the first SR20s, and uh, has flown it a lot. Has written about it. Uh, written uh, about um, light airplanes, personal airplane uh, as transportation. Uh, and very well respected as a journalist uh, in, in a variety of other uh, uh, variety of other avenues. But he he, he put this um, this particular um, article uh, link put a link to it from Avionics Magazine, and uh, basically the punchline here is almost half of the current constellation of GPS satellites are at or approaching single thread operation, where a critical system failure could render the satellite inoperative. Uh, and what are the options for replacing GPS satellites? And that was kind of the thrust of the uh, the article uh, in, in Avionics Magazine. And I read the article, and, and basically, you know, yes, there are several satellites servicing the constellation as we speak, uh, which some of the redundant systems have failed, for example, uh, which means that if if the last remaining example of that particular type of system on that satellite fails, 
so does the entire satellite. Right. Um, there are uh, satellites in the pipeline. There are some in storage in orbit that can be you know brought online to, to fill a gap if a, if a satellite fails. There are uh, um, newer um, satellites, as I say, in the pipeline, not yet launched. Um, but you know, in a worst case scenario, we could see for a period of time a degraded uh, accuracy in GPS as a result of you know maybe a perfect storm of, of calamities uh, involving these satellites, uh, and that's kind of a head scratcher. I you know I, I just wonder if uh, uh, if if uh, that's possible, and uh, if it is, um, what does that say for for next gen? What does that say for for uh, some of the short-sightedness that we've seen in, for example, doing away with Loran, or, or I should say not funding Loran as a, as a uh, backup system for GPS. And ultimately, basically the whole world now depends on GPS. And uh, uh, when are we going to get to the point where we as a, as a country either reach out to, to other organizations, other countries, and say, hey, how about a little help with this? Or, you know, suck it up and take on the responsibility and fully fund and, and fully commit to operating this system uh, uh, as we would want it operated if, if we were a recipient, not a, not a donor. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a conundrum. Yeah. Well, there's been concerns about going to GPS as a sole source, as a primary source, uh, ever since the idea was floated. Uh, and for a long time, the, one of the underpinnings of fights, struggles, uh, lobbying to keep Loran C functional has been its potential as a backup system. And, you know, there's still a lot of airplanes out there that have Loran. Like, like the line said, why, oh, why did I remove my Loran box? Uh, Europe has an enhanced Loran technology and They've been uh, developing and selling navigation boxes that combine GPS and Loran into one, and uh, some of those were uh, made available over here and nobody wanted them. Uh, but the bottom line is that there are alternatives that provide the same level of functionality and can be tailored to provide the same level of accuracy as uh, WAS GPS. Uh, and it's based on the Loran technology. So uh, I don't know why anybody in this business would ever support the idea of creating, trying to create a system that had no backups, no alternatives to the primary technology. I mean, when we were building the system, when the country was building the system from scratch, you know, we went from bonfires stretched along the airways to to beacons lights to beacon lights. From beacon lights, we went on to the uh, uh, ADF and homing in on radio stations to the four-way radio range. Now, the four-way radio range gave way to VORs, but we kept ADF in for years, and it remained functional, and only in the last few years have they started to decommission uh, NDB stations, non-directional beacons. Uh, so years ago, when satellites were coming along, you know, uh, part of the community was interested in microwave landing system. Well, we got over that because of the expense of the equipment, 
Loran came along in the interim. Loran had been around since World War II. What happened to make it viable for aircraft was microprocessor technology and transistors and so forth, that they were able to shrink the boxes down to panel size and give them brains that let them do uh, things and carry databases like special use airport and airports and uh, on and on. And then satellites finally started to come uh, into their own, reach a critical mass with the number of satellites up there and the available equipment. And, oh, well, Loran's useless. We should just shut it down. But it's not useless. Uh, we've already invested in the bulk of the important infrastructure to have it up, including filling a mid-continent gap back in the 80s to provide aviators with coast-to-coast coverage because Loran had, prior to the 80s, been a coastal coverage system. And uh, so we already have invested in the majority of the major infrastructure, and the enhancements can be done. The stations can be utilized, uh, same frequencies, go to digital transmitters, and it has a lot of life in it. But nobody wants to talk about it because that, that, that that's a diversion from, you know, oh, but GPS can do everything, only if it works 100% all the time. Right, right. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Um, let's see now. This uh, we got to move along here. We're starting to get, <laughs> as usual, we're having too much fun here. Two, uh, two stories in the news over the last week regarding the uh, Northwest Airlines flight that uh, overflew <laughs> its destination. Um, the first one was uh, there's some discussion as to whether or not the FAA should have notified uh, whoever, Homeland Security or what, whatever, uh, more quickly Forces about this. of darkness. Yeah, because, you know. Because if this had been a 152, man, there would have been F-16s on the wing, you know, five well, minutes. Well, my, my, note, my note to you all was, was let's, let me set the stage here. There's an article in um, Wall Street Journal uh, on uh, today's Sunday. It was on Friday. The headline is, FAA reacted slowly to errant jet. And this is talking about the Northwest. It overflew Minneapolis-St. Paul. It went Nordo for an hour and 20 minutes, yada, yada, yada. Uh, everyone's familiar with this story. Um, but the punchline here is that uh, uh, the FAA, according to the military, according to the Air Force, uh, NORAD perhaps, uh, according to the Air Force, the FAA did not notify it timely of this uh, Nordo uh, airliner. And, and the Air Force would have reacted um, more quickly and would have perhaps had aircraft launched to, to escort or, <clears throat> uh, excuse me, escort the, air, the airplane. Um, et cetera, et cetera. And my comment was, you know, if, if this was me, what they would be talking about is not how the FAA delayed uh, um, notifying NORAD. It would, they would be talking about how many cannon shells it took to bring down a debonair. Yeah, yeah because, you know, well, yeah. See, this is yeah. yet another example of how we're being discriminated against. I, the airlines get cut oh, a huge like break. Us. Like the bumper sticker says, I'm a pilot with a 150. Fear me. Fear me. Right. I've never on. seen that. I oh, want that bumper sticker. Oh, yeah, sticker. you can buy those wrong Cafe Press, I'm sure. Oh, I want that bumper sticker. Oh, yeah. Sticker. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, anyway, so that's one story that's in the news right now. Uh, well, do we, what do you real, think? Real quick and dirty, if yeah. they had sent fighters up, 
uh, I'm not sure they would have gotten these nummies' attention because they were too busy typing in their letters to Penthouse. Dear editor, this has <laughs> yeah. never happened to me before. I'm an airline pilot, and I never thought this kind of thing would happen to me. <laughs> now, now, we don't know what was going on there. We only, no, we do know what was going on up We there. know they their story. They confessed that they were trying to decipher the new merged crew scheduling uh, uh, system that's resulting from the uh, uh, Northwest uh, Delta uh, marriage. I, I'm, I don't buy that. Sell, sell it to the Navy. Sell, sell it to the Air Force. Sell it to the Air Force. That Wasn't that the line from uh, an officer and a gentleman? Um, yep. I don't buy that in a heartbeat. You, uh, you th- so, yeah, okay. No. So I don't know what was going on. I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if they were sleeping. I don't know if they were both out of the cockpit and got locked out. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But I know that two crew members um, don't, in a 121 operation in, in the continental United States, they just simply don't do what they did. It, it How does they want to happen. keep their jobs. Well, I think we've proven that. But the whole thing is just, uh, uh, it's literally fantastic to me how a professional crew can go Norda for an hour and 20 minutes and then act surprised about it. Yeah. And the well, best they can come up with is they were playing with their laptops, and I'll shut up. Th- no, this leads me into the second story that I think is interesting here, um, and that was that the FAA has gone ahead and revoked their pilot certificates for both these guys, all right? Um, and, and I want to suggest that maybe that's an overreaction. All right, just, I do too. Um, you know, first of all, it's very quick. I'm not sure if there's been enough time for there to be any kind of due process to make to figure out what was going on here. But I, I want to suggest that that going and full blown re- pulling their entire pilot certificate is is extreme here. Um, that these guys screwed up. They did something really stupid. We don't exactly know the nature of it, but they clearly did something really foolish or stupid or careless or whatever. But none of it really plays into their their um, their airmanship skills that may, maybe they should have lost their ATP. Maybe they should have lost their commercial. Maybe they should have lost their IFR, but, but maybe taking they should away, have just had it suspended for six months. What, but, but why did they take away their private? All right. So if these guys no. own Moonies, they can't even fly their Moonies anymore. All right. Yeah. I, I don't know that they, that all of their tickets were revoked. Uh, it could well have been. And I'll, 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 I'll go with that. Um, first of all, um, the FAA can do anything they want. Uh, for a short period of time, for a, for a period of time. Uh, in this case, both crew members have a 10-day window uh, to repeal the revocation. And I, I, can, I, I can pretty much bet that they will, uh, although I haven't seen anything uh, formal that they, have, that they have filed for an appeal. And then it goes through the NTSB adjudication process, and I think we all know what the NTSB is going to have to say about this. Um, but that is just the start of the appeals process and and they can you know apply down the road for reinstatement um yeah i think it's a little heavy-handed on the faa's part i think um um a suspension or or some other uh, um a sanction might have been uh, the way to go these guys you know basically their career is over okay yeah they're, they're going to get fired yeah they're going to get fired by northwest delta whomever you want to call it uh, and they're going to have a heck of a time. Uh, they're going to be, you know, flying rugged, rubber dog poop out of Hong Kong uh, if if they get their licenses back. Um, well, I had a punishment in mind. What's that? <laughs> Go ahead. 
that they should be stuck between canceled flights and Chicago O'Hare for 48 hours. <laughs> okay. With, with, with nothing but an iPhone that, and that will just constantly reloads trade of plan. <laughs> All right. Let's move on. We're really running out of time here. David, uh, you mentioned this sounds like a personal story here. Uh, ATC saves one from hypoxia. What's this all about, David? Uh, I picked this up from uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, aviation uh, sources uh, just the other night while I was hunkered over a, uh, a, a laptop computer in an undisclosed location. Uh and it was a few days old then, but apparently a couple of weeks ago, uh, a said uh, a small plane pilot. Well, it turned out it was a uh, a Cessna 400, uh, now called the Corvallis 400. Right. That's the old Lancer Columbia guys. Uh, turbocharged airplane uh, cruising its 23,000 feet. Uh, elderly gentleman with his uh, adult daughter in the right seat and he started to suffer from hypoxia and wasn't responding to permission for his own request to descend from 230 down to 17,000 and finally the the daughter got her hand on the mic key on her uh, single stick on the right side and started talking to the controllers, and the controllers worked with her to do things like get the autopilot disconnected so the airplane could descend, and then helped her maintain control of the airplane to turn it back on some headings that kept them uh, the controllers in contact. Uh, it all ended well. Uh, but it was one thing about the pilot that kind of disturbed me. Uh, he's okay. just had a significant... Uh, incident in flight where he's not in control of the airplane. Uh, He's not capable of controlling the airplane as evidenced by he wasn't answering radio calls and he wasn't responding to the uh, ATC okay for him to descend. Then he's flying along fat, dumb, and happy. And then when he starts to feel half-assed decent, he declines an invitation to land and insists he's going to go on to his destination. And then went into, you know, uh, hypoxia-induced issues yet again. And eventually he, he, uh, he got down to low enough altitude. He started to recover. He, uh, he, uh, got back in control of the aircraft. Uh, but he'd been unconscious, basically. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, controllers, uh, found somebody in one of their uh, facilities that actually had experience in that type of airplane, was familiar with the systems, uh, and uh, he uh, finally conceded to uh, the urgings of controllers to make a precautionary landing uh, in Ohio and got on the ground about an hour after this whole thing started. Uh, and it raised two questions in my mind. Uh, when you're flying an airplane with that kind of capability, there's not really a requirement for piston drivers to uh, train for the high altitude stuff like there is for turbine drivers, particularly those going to fly above 270 or 370. 
the requirements keep getting more stringent the higher you go. Uh, here's a guy that's got a highly capable airplane, very, very easily flies at 230, and he has zero recognition of the hypoxia that's bothering him until he's well into it. Uh, the second thing is that he's got family who flies with him regularly who is completely unfamiliar with how the airplane works. Right. Yeah, it's one thing to have a friend with you along for a ride on the first one or the second or third one. It, you know, you haven't taught them to fly yet, but you have briefed them on a few things. Like if you, if you know, if something happens to me, you should key this mic button and ask the controller for help. Uh, you know, if I slump over on the seat, throw my butt in the back and save yourself. Uh, and I've known a number of husbands, and I'm going to point to the husbands as opposed to any wives that I know who were just in shock at the idea of you asking whether the bride could land the airplane if she needed to. No, I'm the pilot. Well, did you ever put her through a pinch hitter program? No, she takes care of the kids. I'm sorry, but bite me. That's your freaking family you're talking about there, and you're acting like it's an an insult to to equip them to survive a possible incapacitation. Uh, And I know a guy that I don't know him well, and I'm not particularly fond of him. I I do not seek his company. But he had a heart attack, a fairly significant one. Uh, And through wonders of uh, good treatment, medical science, uh, and the fact that he's as strong as a horse, he got his medical back. And he's flying around his wife. This is some years ago. His wife and his two small daughters and my wife got to talking to his wife about the experience and what would have happened if that had transpired in the airplane and come to find out she knew zip and zero about the operation of the aircraft. She didn't know where the mic button was. She didn't know how to key up. She didn't know what 121.5 was, squawking 7700. She didn't know that she could ask for help from controllers because... My husband didn't really like me messing with the airplane. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's it, no good. That's just that's irresponsible. Yeah, the I guy agree. had one heart attack, and he's treating it like an insult to his manhood. That you might want to equip his wife to save herself and their two small children. No, uh, I can't respect that person at, at, at any level. Yeah, yeah. The. Uh the situation where the guy had hypoxia and the daughter took over um, is, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes to a really interesting article with a lot of detail about this whole uh, event from the, uh, it's just from the FAA.gov, the employees website apparently. Yes. My FAA, my FAA employee site. And so uh, we'll put a link in there. Good story. Okay, here we go. We did this once before. We'll see if we can do it better this time. Lightning round. <laughs> we've, got, we've got about six stories here that, um, that are not really very long, very big. I don't think they didn't merit a long discussion here, but I wanted to kind of talk about them real quickly. So let's see if we can work our way through these quickly. Uh, Jeb, you wanted to uh, make a comment about the uh, Delta 767 that uh, that had a, made an interesting runway choice. Yeah, this was a couple of weeks ago, and and... I don't. This I think happened like within two or three days of the uh, Northwest Nordo episode, uh, and uh, you know, just just as an aside to whoever is Delta's uh, 
vice president of operations, you know, dude, we, you know, everybody has a bad week, but you know, yours really did suck. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, I'm trying to figure out uh, with five runways at Atlanta, how a 767 can land on a taxiway. At six a.m. Uh, yeah, I know. The don't, only explanation I can the only explanation uh, I can think of is that he was busy working on his laptop as he was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, or the sunlight, you know, in, in the dawn twilight uh, moments, was, uh, made it impossible for him to discern blue taxiway lights from white runway lights. It was. It was. From what I understand, it was still dark, dark uh, at that time of day in Atlanta. Weather was okay. I don't it was certainly VFR. It was cleared uh, um, inside the marker. Apparently, uh, they switched runways from the left side to the right side on him. Okay, fine. A little, little sidestep, and, and 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 maybe therein is the is the crux of the problem. Where um, sidesteps inside the marker are certainly something they practice all uh, all the time, but. Uh, uh, this particular crew had had a Czech airman on board earlier, or who was still on board at the, at the time, uh, who um, um, had, had, had gotten sick, had gotten ill, and had to leave the flight deck, and, and presumably was was seated somewhere in the passenger uh, uh, compartment. And it's not clear to me if they had declared a medical emergency or an aeronautical emergency, but uh, there were clearly, you know, all of this was on their mind. Um, yeah, definitely an oopsie. Again, I'm sorry, guys, but that's why you're getting paid the big bucks to deal with distractions well, like this. In theory, they're getting paid the big bucks, the, right? The but well, yeah, this also goes for the 188 crew. Um, you know, ultimately, guys, you know, you didn't do your job, and that that's why everybody's got their everybody's pissed off. Right. Okay. Moving on. Um, so I wanted to call attention to the fact that uh, one of my one of the websites I go to all the time for for, for either fantasizing or actually doing uh, real uh, flight planning is skyvector.com. This is a site that provides uh, all of the well for me the sectionals, but it also has the instrument charts and has lots of different charts available on a, in a web browser interface. Um, I discovered the other day that they are now have a public beta of their 2.0 uh, version up and running, and I like it. Um, I urge people to take a look at it, um, even if you weren't using Skyvector before. Uh, it, it's nice. They've cleaned it up. It, it looks a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, it's visually more appealing. Um, they've taken out a big sidebar, so they're using the whole window, so you see more of the chart at the same at one time. Um, it looks not, like, and the charts look better for some reason. Yeah, I think so. I think they've done Higher something. Quality to, scan or maybe, huh? Maybe. Um, yeah. Another thing I like about it is that for some time now, you've been able to to create. Um, uh, flight plans, you know, draw lines, if you will, on the chart, and it would tell you heading and, and distance. Um, they've now made that so that you can actually, uh, you can, um, what they call rubber band, you can actually drag the lines around in order to uh, to adjust that. In the past, you had to just kind of re-enter new waypoints. Um, so they've done that. Uh, they've got a kind of cool little interface for selecting which sectional you want to look at. In the past, you popped up a list, a list of sectionals, and you just selected one from the list, and now it's kind of you interactive. You know, I was just using this couple of nights ago to fill in some blank uh, in my notes for a small trip that I'd taken recently. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I found it very helpful. Yeah. So I like the new beta version, and uh, uh, everyone should take a look. You know, one uh, of the other things they've done here is they've changed their uh, symbology, they've changed their graphics for the way in which you can scroll through and, 
and move your mouse over um, a weather reporting station and have the uh, the METAR pop yeah, right up. Yeah, a little more readable. That's, that's kind of slick. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I, I like this interface. Yeah. So everyone should take a look. Next, um, I just I don't know how, where the story goes, but there was a plane that got diverted. Uh, uh, this is an airliner that the captain decided to land at a different location um, after a passenger was caught stealing beer in the cabin. I just think I don't know. You talk about uh, uh, you know going too far. It just doesn't seem to me like this rises to the level of you know we need to land out right now. Um, Someone stole a beer off the cart and then tried to hide the uh, hide the empties in the in the men's room or something like that. Do you hear this story? Yeah, they tried to put the empties down the lavatory. Maybe that's the part. It's flushed the empty cans down the fifty seat jet's toilet to dispose of the evidence. Um, This is clearly the the act of a terrorist. (laughs) This is clearly the act of a of a wannabe hijacker, right? No, it's just like the guy stole some beers. You know, divert the whole whole thing, the whole uh, whole yeah, airplane worth of people. Yeah, when you think of the people. cost of diverting the flight against the cost of the stolen beer, this is clearly a little bit out of uh, uh, out of balance. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I don't know. Maybe someone can in the forums explain to us why that's a reasonable way of doing this. Next, as I put in the headline here, let the jokes begin. Uh, this is uh, headline is. Everyone will get this instantaneously. Headline is, world's oldest hang glider pilot to make a rare appearance at Roransor in Florida. So, David, that's why you're down in Florida, huh? That's right, Sonny. <laughs> All right, it's not talking about David. It's talking about Neil. I love when a plane comes it's not talking about David. It's talking about Neil Goss, an 89-year-old World War II veteran pilot and hang glider pilot uh, for, of 35 years who is going to be uh, uh, flying at this demonstration thing. And uh, more power to him, man. Still flying okay. hang gliders at 89? Awesome. I hope I'm still there with him when the time comes. Yeah. David, do you know Neil Goss? I've met him. Uh-huh. I've met him years ago. Uh he showed up at some of the sites that I used to fly up around Chattanooga, and uh, he was not among the younger of our pilot community then. And uh, it just tickles me to you know to know him that he's continued to uh, to participate. And uh, he, I mean, he didn't start flying hang gliders till he was in his fifties. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I'm, just, you know, I'm just reading this story. Yeah, Jeff. A, a General Aviation. I'm just reading the story from General Aviation News. This guy uh, served in World War II, beginning in February '42, as a as a uh, bombardier and navigator on B-17s. He flew five zero five zero fifty missions in B-17s over Sicily, Italy, France, Austria, and Greece mm. um, during the war. Then. Uh, he uh, trained in, as a pilot on the B-25 and B-26 uh, and got his uh, actually his commercial multi-engine rating in June of 45. I would really just like to talk to him, putting aside the hang glider thing. I would just really like to sit down and, and, and hear his, some of his stories because I'm sure he's got it. Must be great. Must be great. missions B-17. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Neil Goss, G-O-S-S. Once again, we'll put a link in the show notes. 
Next, this is probably not a small story, but let's just talk about it for a couple minutes and maybe come back to it. Um, the FAA has issued an, an, an a, uh, airworthiness directive for lots of Piper airplanes. According to this, 41,000, mm. 42,000 Piper airplanes. Are there 42,000 airworthy Piper airplanes in the world? I guess there must be. Um, yeah. Um, uh, FAA and its move to prevent control wheels from coming loose out of their control wheel shaft on cert- certain Piper aircraft. Um, they claim that for most aircraft, this will just be a $40 check, and then uh, and then it'll be done with. Um, but uh, this sounds like a big deal to me. Well, according to this this write-up in, in AvWeb, and, and you know, certainly I haven't read it in, in supporting documentation from the FAA, the FAA has received two reports of control wheel shafts that were incorrectly assembled at Piper. So let's One ground them all. Yeah. Right wheel from the shaft and another was discovered during a ground inspection. So we're talking about two control yokes uh, that were incorrectly assembled. We don't know when. We don't know anything about you know, all the thousands and thousands of airplanes that have probably been in the field since before this incorrect assembly uh, took took place. We don't know anything about how uh, Piper uh, responded to this and fixed the assembly line problem that created this. But we have found two airplanes that uh, may have a problem uh, with their control yoke. So we're going to ground, we're not going to ground, we're going to mandate an AD for the entire fleet of Piper airplanes, PA-28s, 32s, 34s, and 44s. That's Cherokees, that's Cherokee 6s and Lances and Saratogas, that's, that's Senecas, and that's Seminoles. Okay, all all four different models, uh, different types. And uh, just just because we can't keep our paperwork straight, and just because, yeah, it might be a 40-year-old Cherokee, but you never know when it might have gotten, you know, a bad control yoke. This is absurd. Yeah, yeah. It's David, truly absurd. you're the Piper guy, David. Anything you want to add to this? Well, it, it, in, in reading this, I, I keep wondering if the, if the problem is not somewhere behind the panel rather than just the wheel coming off the shaft because it says the uh, control wheel shafts coming loose from their control wheel shafts on certain Piper aircraft. But then it says it costs six, takes 16 hours of labor and a total cost of $1,430 per airplane to fix. I'm sorry, that's not just well, replacing a wheel on a shaft. And, uh, right. you know, and the $40 inspection... Uh, I, I imagine that there's going to be some heavy-duty weigh-in on this uh, by Piper, possibly AOPA, the uh, the uh, different groups that represent pilots uh, of those aircraft uh, specifically. Uh, you know, mandating the inspection, a special inspection at the next annual. That's yeah. that's not all that far out of line. Uh, but to, uh, to to require something special on top of that when you've got one incident of a failure and another incident of the problem, a problem being found during an inspection out of 42,000 airplanes. Uh, I'm sorry, but uh, well, somebody's knee jerk so badly they should have broken their front teeth. <laughs> yeah. 
there there have been episodes over the years in my memory where um, I think both Piper and Cessna uh, yoke assemblies and in, in, in Beechcraft also for that matter is an AD on Beechcraft yoke assemblies um, where there was you know insufficient uh, or improper attaching hardware or um, the uh, the yoke itself uh, um, for one reason or another was was uh, manufactured incorrectly. Um, um, this this almost sounds like um, go down to the to the uh, uh, National Automotive Parts Association store, buy a couple of nuts and bolts, get out your your Makita, and and drill a backup hole in the yoke where it, where it meets with the the shaft coming out of the out of the panel, and you'll be hunky and dory. Uh, that's not recommended by any stretch of the imagination. But that's what this is sounding like. Mm-hmm. I guess we're going to have well, to look. And, and, uh, I'm going to lead you right into your last item on the uh, on, on the lightning round. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of in the same vein as uh, requiring 42,000 airplanes to be inspected because of one incident, and that's what we're talking about, one incident here and a problem found in an inspection in a second case. And the FAA's airport compliance manual was just updated, and it's gone from 62 pages uh, in the 20 year ago version to almost 700 pages. Oh my God! What is what? What changed about that? Are they are, are they using a compliance manual now to dictate how you spray for roaches in the hangars? I mean, geez, uh, they are the most overkill capable uh, aviation agency I know of. Yeah, well, they're a bureaucracy. What do you want? Well, I know exactly what happened here. Is is they they contracted this out. They they put out an RFP. I'm not, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm guessing. Put out an RFP for this for uh, at, you know a couple of three years ago, and the contractor who got the the contract decided he or she was going to earn their contract. Yeah. And and yeah. Uh, you know format tweaks and you know bump up the font size, maybe a little blow some white space in in there between lines. Um, and uh, boom, you got 700 pages. And, uh, maybe and, and I'm willing to page. acknowledge. I'm willing to acknowledge that there's been a lot of challenges to airport grants and changes and and, and uh, some stuff that came along that required new interpretations of how you uh, uh, stay in compliance with grants assurance agreements and all that stuff. Because that's what this book is for. Uh, provides FAA people and airport sponsors with guidance on how to comply with federal grants assurances and to analyze potential assurance violations. Uh, I guess maybe that's, even at almost 700 pages, maybe that's smarter than simply saying, when in doubt, call the FAA. All right. That's good. That wasn't exactly a lightning round, but it was faster than our average, so I guess anything is an improvement. While we're here... I just happened to click on a link here on the AOPA website. Yeah. Um, uh, June Mall, Mall Aircraft, uh, according to AOPA, died uh, Friday. Uh-huh. Uh, she was 92 years old. I she saw that story, the, yeah. Uh, the, the matriarch of, of the Mall family, is, as they uh, as they say here on AOPA. And uh, that's just, you know, just another little uh, thing to note here. Yeah, that is sad. Uh, sort of brings us into shout-outs. Any other shout-outs, David? Uh, strangely enough, 
uh, speechless. I'm, uh, I'm 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 on the road for a trip as long as Oshkosh usually is. So I want to shout out to my bride Annie for having to put up with carrying all of life's homeowner and 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 family chores for. 12 days while I'm off gallivanting around in, in, in airplane business. So, uh, and to my good friend Jeb Burnside for putting up with me for the next few days is his hacienda here at the uh, undisclosed airport location. Sure, surely, surely that surely uh, Annie doesn't actually listen to this podcast, does she? My goodness. Once in a while. Oh, okay. So she's going to be so pining while you're away. She's just going to want to hear your voice. She's going to listen to the podcast to hear Dave's. Ah, oh, it's so sweet. Well, and some some of our uh, some of our friends listen uh, pretty regularly, and if they hear this, they will bring it up to her. Ah, okay, which, all right. We'll then make it a surprise, and then she'll have to listen. And of course, she'll get bored and she'll jump to the end. So we can't. Yeah, that's right. She'll just skip ahead. All right. Well, I guess that's enough for this one. Then uh, let me see now. David Higgins. One, one more. Item. Oh, you got another one. I'm one sorry. More, Go ahead. More. Yeah, I got that on. Um, each year, uh, towards the holidays, uh, a group of pilots in the Mid-Atlantic area gets together, and um, they conduct what's known as the Holly Run. This is kind of as it sounds. They fly in uh, Holly. You mean like uh, the Christmas plant? The Christmas, uh, the Christmas wreath, the Christmas plant, yeah. Fly in Holly to Tangier Island, Virginia. Tangier Island is out in the middle of the uh, uh, waterway there, the confluence of the Potomac and the uh, Chesapeake Bay. And uh, you only get there via a ferry boat, which takes like an hour, hour and a half, or by light airplane. They have a, about a 4,000-foot runway there. Every year in, in, during the holidays, the pilots gets together and, and flies uh, uh, all this holiday. There's a Santa Claus, and, and I'm sure there's some gifts and, and things like this. Um, this island is... is um, very secluded. It's it's uh, hasn't changed a whole lot in, in, in decades. Uh, the economics of it are are um, um, daunting. Uh, the the people who live there um, don't have a lot, but they you know they do have you know hey they live on an island. Um, yeah. But um, um, each year this this goes on. It's been a very successful thing over the years. They've probably been doing this for uh, in my recollection twenty years. I've never uh, had a chance to participate in it. But um, uh, just uh, hats off to the people this year who are organizing this. Um, um, those who might be living in the in the Mid Atlantic area, and uh, who might want to participate in this or learn more about it, or anybody for that matter who might want to learn more about it. There's a website. It's, it's TangierHollyRun.com, and uh, anyone can can check this out and find out more about it. Maybe donate some time. Maybe donate some money. Maybe actually. Uh, uh, fly one of these missions and uh, uh, um, help help some kids out, help some families out come the holidays. Um, right now, they're scheduled to do this on December 5 with uh, a bad weather day of uh, December 12. Mm-hmm. This sounds familiar. We didn't. Wasn't there an issue with this sometime in the last couple of years? Were they unable to do it? Like yes, for some, I'm trying to remember. This sounds familiar. I don't there know. may have there may have been. I don't recall either. Um, too many brain cells ago, but. Um, Chip, I mean, they've done. They tried to do it every year. For for in some years, they may have gotten into a manpower and, and leadership issue where the. I, I want to say there was like a weather issue or like a flooding, or there was, there was some problem out on the island, or I don't remember exactly. I don't know. Someone uh, will tell us. Last last year, it might have been that the uh, the runway was being uh, um, 
maintain or be it was torn up. I know maybe that's what it was. Maybe that's what uh, it was. On the, on the island. They've done that in the last year or so. Maybe that was the issue. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. All right. Any other shout-outs? Everybody good? Okay, Dave Higdon is a uh, is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and is the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, uh, havebuyer.com for World Aircraft Sales, the digital edition, uh, aea.net for uh, the occasional stuff that I do for avionics news, davehigdon.biz to look at my photography, uh, maybe even uh, something called Aviation Safety. They seem to have a website, too. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. And Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Where can people find you on the Internet? Well, as, as Dave alluded there just a moment ago, he occasionally pops up in my magazine, which is uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, personal website is jeburnside.com. And uh, I do occasionally also pop up on our web. So it's, it's not hard to find me if you're looking. I don't know why you'd be looking, but there you go. <laughs> All right. Now, I want you boys to behave yourselves now, right? You know, it's like don't get too wild no. and crazy down there. Right? Don't do anything I wouldn't no. do. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our excellent show notes. Thanks to uh, Roy Searle and Mike Morgan and to the many other listeners who have created our show opening disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful to the uh, f- uh, to everyone who provides financial support to us uh, uh through the website uh, for information on how you can make a donation to this podcast see the uncontrolled airspace homepage and the box in the right hand column labeled tip jar doesn't need to be very much just 10 or 15 dollars over the span of a year is a big help and don't forget you can visit with all of us at the uncontrolled airspace website you can read the blog view the forums check out the wiki the aviation movies list and more all of that that I was doing, well, I wasn't doing real well, but I was struggling through until that word right there. All of that at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Live longer through aviation. Go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan, and I picked up months in the last week, so... Months on my lifespan. There you go. It can happen to you, too. That's right. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFM. TTFM.